God, we ask you right now that you would um, guide, that you would lead. Give us the wisdom that we need, Father, to be able to understand, to know your heart, to know what's on your mind. God, we don't want sin to be something that keeps us from you. We don't want religious pride to be something that keeps us from you. We want your heart to be open and revealed. And God, we need eyes to be able to see because so oftentimes we just confess we don't see clearly and we formulate false ideas about you that become the basis of how we live. And at the end of the day, our lives are not full of joy. They're not full of forgiveness. In fact, quite the opposite. They're full of turmoil, hardship, unrest, unforgiveness, anger, bitterness. And God, you came so that we would have life. Um, And God, oftentimes the life that you give us is in conjunction with suffering. You didn't come to take away all of our suffering. You came to give us life even in the midst of suffering and oftentimes as a result of suffering. So God, we pray that you would help us just to understand your ways to tap into your heart so that we would love you more, find joy through you, and that you'd be glorified. So God, let your word speak to our hearts, we pray, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read um, the section of the scripture that we're going to be taking a look at. It takes place in about chapter 1, verse 19. Um, I'll read this little section here. One of the things that we've been noticing in this great book is that the, there are a list of characters, but there's also a narrator. The story of Ruth is actually written like a play. Um, it's written as a narrative, so it's an actual storyline. Uh, there's a speaker, like I said, a narrator that every once in a while comes in and gives sort of the, the background. It kind of paints the scene, sets the stage verbally as to where the rest of the characters are going to go. Then the characters speak back and forth. And where we're at right now at the end of chapter 1, we're at this place where uh, this gal by the name of Naomi, who is one of the central figures in this story, she kind of engages in uh, what we would just identify as like this little monologue. She begins to talk. And uh, what we learn about Naomi is actually very interesting and very insightful. We learn a lot about her understanding of God is what we really learn. And one of the reasons why we learn about her understanding of God is because she's a woman who has had great bitterness come into her life, great suffering, great difficulty. And yet what that great difficulty actually did is it didn't, it, it actually revealed to us what Naomi thought about God and how she came to understand uh, her view of God was probably even forged on this anvil of uh, great calamity and difficulty. And so uh, it's very telling to us about the type of theological convictions that Naomi had about God. But one of the beautiful things about the story of the book of Ruth is that um, in some ways it sort of juxtaposes Naomi's theological convictions about God against the narrator narrator storyline. Which, in other words, even though Naomi had a viewpoint of God that was inconsistent with the actual storyline of the book. Because even though Naomi might have looked at God and thought, God's against me, God doesn't love me, God isn't working anything for my favor, the actual narrator of the book tells us an entirely different story. But that was not the story after all. That God actually was working everything for Naomi's good. That God actually did love Naomi. And that Naomi was actually on the verge of seeing this great blessing of God come into her life. And so we get this very unique vantage point that Naomi and Ruth, uh, two main characters of the story, didn't have. So with that right now, we're going to read the last few verses of this chapter, and then we'll get to work. So the two of them, that's Ruth and Naomi, they went until they came to Bethlehem. The story uh, starts out by saying they left Bethlehem, or I should say Naomi left Bethlehem some 10 
or so years prior uh, because there was a famine in Bethlehem. So ironically, uh, she's been living in this region of Moab, but she hears that the famine's over and that there's actually bread returned back into the house of bread. The name Bethlehem, Bethlehem actually means house of bread. So she's returning back to the house of bread because at one point there was no house or there was no bread in the house of bread. Now bread is actually returned to the house of bread. So she's on her way back into the region of Bethlehem. It says, so the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite with her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So I want to do something with you real quick, and I want to ask you a question. You've got to finish the phrase. All right, you ready? Time heals. All right, how many actually believe that? All right, it's kind of one of those silly phrases that like once in a while, like if you ever sit down with somebody who's suffering, you're like, it's all right, bro. Time heals all wounds. Like you, you got my permission as a pastor to do something violent, all right? It doesn't matter, all right? It's totally a lie. It's not true. It doesn't work. I don't know why we try to convince ourselves that it works or that it's real. It just doesn't work. Like, you tell that to somebody who's gone through great calamity or great tragedy, or a child who maybe, like, when they're eight years old, mom and dad divorce, and they grew up not having a mom, or you tell that to a gal who's young who was maybe raped, or tell it to somebody, a young boy who lost his father, who died, or something like that. Tell that to somebody to say, you know, it's all right, it'll get better someday, because after all, time heals all wounds. It's horrible, it really doesn't. The point of the matter is that we are so oftentimes looking for nice little cliches that fit nicely and neat, neat, neatly on coffee mugs that we can just live according to, live by. Because we so desperately want to believe that everything is just working out fine. Even though we have no evidence whatsoever to that. But the point of the matter is what we see in Naomi's life is she was in this, this place, this situation where she felt very hopeless. Like, like not only did God bring great calamity upon her life, but that really that there was something about it behind maybe God's purpose and intention in doing this that was actually devious. It wasn't good. It wasn't because God loved her, but she had believed these things. Ironically, what you're going to find in the story is that Naomi has theological convictions about God. In fact, I would even go so far as that to say that every one of us in this room, all of us have theological convictions about God. I mean, you might look at your life and be like, I don't read the Bible that much. I'm not a theologian. I don't have theological convictions. You do. Every one of us have a theological conviction about God. The moment you are sitting around in a group of people and you're watching some sort of calamity on TV, all right, Maybe that whole situation just took place the past couple of days. I think mean, it was in, in Norway, isn't that correct? Where the guy went in, dressed as a police officer, and killed almost, almost 100 people. Horrible. The moment someone opens their mouth and begins to say, well, I think God, what you're actually doing, the moment you say that, is you're actually declaring a theological perspective. No matter what it is. I think God is disconnected. It's a theological perspective. I think God is not loving. It's a theological perspective. I think God is powerless. Again, a theological perspective. All of us 
have some form of theological perspective. And I would say that most of our theological perspectives are actually formed in the crucible of suffering, just like Naomi's. In the crucible of suffering, what we believe oftentimes becomes forged or put together. And this is definitely the case where Naomi was. She was a woman that started out maybe 10, 11 or so, perhaps years prior. She was living in the region of Bethlehem, as the story tells us, the narrator tells us in all of chapter 1. It doesn't give us a lot of details. It just simply boils things down in these little fine bullet points where Naomi started out in the region of Bethlehem, in the area of, of Israel, and there was a famine in the land, and she was led by her husband, whose name was Elimelech, into the region of Moab. And then the first five verses just gives us these little bullet points that then her husband died, and then she had two sons. They ended up marrying two Moabite women, and then her two sons died. And then the two Moabite women, for 10 years they were married, and they were inconceivable. They couldn't have children. So what you have at the end of the day is you have an old lady who's postmenopausal, who can't have any more children, who's lost her husband, lost her two sons, has absolutely no hope of ever having children ever again. She's completely overwhelmed with suffering. She comes back into the land of Bethlehem where she once left. It'd be equivalent in modern day terms. She left driving away in her husband's Hummer. She returns on a Greyhound bus. That's her. All right? Her life was miserable. She comes back into the town and everybody from a distance they recognize from some sort of distance, that must be Naomi. She's coming back. We haven't seen her in a long time. We haven't gotten any letters from her. Imagine, like I said, these cities back then. Don't think big cities. Think like little tribes. Think like Shandon, all right? Think where there's maybe like 1,100 people, not many people out there. Everybody somehow is related. I don't know if that's the way it is in Shandon, but everybody somehow knows each other. All right, there's some sort of familial relationship that everybody has with everyone, and they see Naomi coming off in the distance, and they're like, that's Naomi. Now, remember Naomi's name. Again, another little bit of a play in the Hebrew text. The word Naomi literally means um, pleasant or happy, chipper, all right? She's like, don't call me chipper. I'm not happy. I'm not, I'm not pleasant anymore. She says, call me Mara. So all these women come out, and they're like, that's, that's Naomi. She looks different. We don't know exactly what it is. And she's like, I'm not Naomi. Because 10, 11, or however many years exactly she's been gone has been 10 years of, of great suffering, at least the last few years of that duration of time. Suffering has this ability of turning hairs gray. It has this ability of making your eyes sink. It has this ability of literally weathering you and wearing you out through attrition and destroying you. And this is exactly where Naomi was. Her life was broken. She went out. One person, she returns a different person. She says, don't call me Naomi. I'm not pleasant anymore. Um, Call me Mara. Call me bitterness. That's who I am. That's what has happened to my life. This is what's happened to my soul as a consequence. And as a result of that, she begins to enter into sort of her monologue. And what I want to do right now is I want to begin to take a look at what her monologue reveals to us that she has come to believe about God. I think it's really insightful. Because like I said, all of us in here have some sort of theological understanding about God. All of us have somehow come to the theological convictions we have based upon some level of suffering that either we've endured or we've watched somebody else 
endure. You know, when we watch evil on television, the, the funny thing is for us as humans, we try, especially as Americans, we try desperately to ignore any trace of pure evil until evil arises and smacks us in the face and we can't ignore it. But yet we will typically, on any typical day, we just act as if we're all good, everybody's really good in their heart to some degree, we just got to tap into hidden goodness, and then all of a sudden something like a 9-11 happens, or something like an Oslo happens, and we begin to realize, man, this is not as good as we all once assumed it to be or hoped it would be. And we form our convictions about God from those furnaces. And Naomi's no exception to that. And so there's at least three things that Naomi reveals to us um, in her own words that tell us a little bit about what she's come to believe about God. The first thing is we see that she actually believed in God. So this is kind of a positive one. And the reason why I point this out, even though it might seem obvious, I point it out because I think in our world this stands out in great contrast. And I'll tell you why. Um, Naomi, even though she went through the crucible, even though she was struck on the anvil and she was just hammered and broken Naomi didn't walk away from God and say you know that's it I'm an atheist now or I'm just going to be at best an agnostic it's not the way Naomi was she continued being a believer in God and the reason why I find this very insightful especially in contrast to our culture is because somehow our culture has kind of gotten drunk on its own self gotten drunk on our own wisdom we think somehow we've figured God out. We live in a very disposable culture, disposable society. We throw things away if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work the way that we expect it to work or the way that we hope it should work. We just throw it away. I remember talking with a guy a few years ago, kind of an old guy, and he's just like, yeah, I remember the day, you know, when toaster broke. I took it to the toaster repairman. I'm like, those existed? Like, toaster repairman? I didn't even know they had those things back. Like, toaster repairman, I never even thought about that. Can't even believe somebody actually had a job. What do you do for a living? I'm a toaster repairman. But the reality is, is that back in the day, if something broke, you would take it back and have it repaired. I mean, today, if you had a toaster that would break, it ends up in the trash can, all right? And you would go out and buy a new one. That's why Target's here. You're like, yes, Target. You go out and buy a new one. And it's cheap because we live in a culture where everything, the value has gone down, and we just don't place a premium value on anything anymore. It's very disposable. If it breaks, it doesn't work the way that we want. We go either throw it away, we get a new one. And in a lot of ways, it's very convenient and it's nice. We love living in this type of culture. But the reality is we typically take that same idea that we associate with almost everything else and we bring that into our relationships. We bring that into relationships, whether it be marriage relationships, church relationships. And this is where it becomes lethal. Right? This is where it becomes lethal, where, especially in the realm of relationships. If a relationship's not working properly, right? How many of you actually have ever been in a relationship where it always works properly? None of us, all right? That's exactly what I thought. We're all dysfunctional. All of us. We all have something broken. So what you can assume is the moment you get into a relationship, it will break. Probably because of you. You bring something broken to it. We all do. I sit down with pre-married couples and I tell them straight up. I'm like, look, I don't mean to discourage you, but you need to understand 
one out of two people that get married will always end in divorce. It's just statistics. It's just pure science. It's fact. So one out of every two will always end up in divorce. I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just trying to speak reality to you. That this is a reality in the world in which we live in, and it could very possibly happen to you. The point that I would make is that when we look at the type of world in which we live in that's very disposable, we just throw things away because for some reason they don't work to the way that we expect them to work. And so we just throw it away. We bring that even into the church. We come to churches. One of the reasons why I think we live in such sort of a buffet line type religion. People come, they sample, they taste, they sit on the sidelines, they treat churches like hometown buffet. And everybody just checks things out. They listen to things. They sample things. If it works, if everything's great for them, then they will endure it. Most people rarely, if ever, jump in and say, I'm going to marry this. I'm going to be part of this family. Uh, Dysfunctions and all, I will join. And again, I would say it's part of the problem of the culture that we bring into our lives most of the time unknowingly. Because we just treat everything as if it's just... A disposable thing. Church is disposable. Relationships are disposable because everything else is disposable in our lives. And what I'm saying is that what we see in Naomi, that was not the mentality. Her thought, even though she was in the midst of suffering, great trial, great hardship, great calamity, she didn't throw God out the window. She wasn't like, I'm an atheist. She recognized that God exists. There's God I don't understand. I think if you were to sit down with her and interview her and ask her, do you understand why God is doing all this? Uh, No. Then in our culture, we were to even raise the question, then why don't you just bail on God if he's going to do this to you? I think she would look at you like, are you kidding? Where am I going to go? He's God. He rules all things. I can't just run from him. Are you foolish? I think what you would have is one culture looking at another culture and saying, are you foolish? And the answer I think we need to grapple with is that I think we're the foolish ones because we look at every other culture and we just say, why wouldn't you just ditch God? Really? Does that really help? No, because God's God. You cannot run God. God's everywhere. But I point that out because Naomi, even though suffering, stayed faithful to God, even though she did not understand at all what was going on. The second thing that we see with regard to her is that she believed that it was actually that it was God that wounded her. This becomes really clear. Four different times, just listen to how this works out. She says, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She goes on to say, the Lord has brought me back empty. The next one she says, the Lord has testified against me. Next she says, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So there's no doubt about it that Naomi actually believed that that all of this was God. God testified against her. God brought calamity upon her. God was the one that brought bitterness into her soul. Um, Another interesting thing, as I'll show you up on this slide right here, um, the way that some of the Hebrew scholars would kind of identify this is, I mentioned this uh, a couple weeks ago, that the book of Ruth is actually kind of a poetic book. And the the way that the Hebrew is actually written is, is, is in this type of poetic uh, stanza, and the way they would describe this is a chiasma structure, and it's this idea of you have these words that kind of read in sort of like this clockwise fashion, and what you see kind of in the text is uh, very insightful about her understanding about God, but also her understanding about what God's doing to her, and I'll tell you how kind of the Hebrew scholars have kind of um, understood this and seen this for many, many years. For example, she starts out and she identifies God like this. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The actual uh, Hebrew word for the Almighty 
uh, we would just uh, identify it as Shaddai. Shaddai, uh, most of the times that this word appears throughout the entire Old Testament is with the word El before it. So you see the word El Shaddai. In this case, she just uses the word Shaddai. I'll tell you why some of the scholars think why she uses the word Shaddai in a second. But then she goes on and she uses another word to describe God. She says, um, the Almighty Shaddai has dealt very bitterly, bitterly with me. Then she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. So she moves to a secondary type of a word to identify the name of God. Some of your Bible translations, you might see the word um, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And usually whenever you see that in your Bibles, it's usually an indication of a, of a Hebrew word that we would typically look at is, as a vowelless word, um, as identified as Y-H-V-H, as, as is written down right there. And uh, no one really knows exactly how to pronounce that. Some would say Jehovah. Some would say Yahweh. No one knows exactly. So the Hebrews actually had just kind of identified the name because they didn't want to say the name. So a lot of times they would take the vowels out because they didn't want to be like, they didn't want to say the name of God on their lips because the idea was God's name is sacred, God's name is holy, and my lips are unclean, so I don't want to say the name of God. So they came up with the, the name Hashem, Hashem, and so they would say um, Hashem. So first she identifies the Almighty, then she says the Lord, and, or Yahweh, and then she says the Lord again and goes with, back to Shaddai. So Shaddai, um, Yahweh, Yahweh, back to Shaddai, kind of in this circle of pain and hardship that she attributes all the way back to God. Another interesting thing that I think a lot of the scholars have identified that's unique with regard to Naomi in this period of pain uh, that she's actually going through, uh, it's kind of found in her usage of the word Shaddai. Like I already mentioned, she doesn't use the word El Shaddai. And a lot of the Bible scholars believe that that's actually intentional. That the Holy Spirit, for some reason, was um, using this circumstance in her life. In fact, um, in the entire book of Ruth, it's the only time the name Shaddai is used without the word El before it. In fact, if you go throughout your entire Bible, you won't find the name El Shaddai anywhere else except in the book of Job. Uh, it's the only other time the word El Shaddai ever appears and it appears, for example, in Job chapter 27, where it says this, the Almighty has made my soul bitter. So Job, this guy, obviously we all identify as a man who suffered greatly. Job attributes his suffering to God. He says, Shaddai has actually brought suffering into my soul. Shaddai has caused me to become bitter. Well, a lot of the scholars have identified that perhaps the reason why Naomi speaks like this is because she's actually identifying herself as the female Job. Like, how, how deep is her suffering? How horrific has the pain of, of Naomi sunk? Well, I think Naomi would identify herself and say, I, I identify with Job. Just as God's hand had turned against Job, so I would look at the hand of God and say, God's hand, just like it turned against Job, is also turned against me, that God has brought this into my life. There's another interesting thing I think that's, you know, worthy of pointing out with regard to the word Shaddai, perhaps another reason why it might be used, is actually found in the book of Isaiah. Um, the word Shaddai, very similar to another Hebrew word, which means um, to plunder or to take away or to strip, to take away from. Um, you kind of get the idea of the two Hebrew words, Shaddai or El Shaddai, the name of God, along with this other Hebrew word means to plunder. Um, and here's the way it comes out in Isaiah chapter 13. It says, the day the, Lord, the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. So the way that the Hebrew would have been written there um, in red would go something like this, Shad, uh, Shaddai El Shaddai, meaning um, 
Destruction comes from the God Shaddai. But it would sound very similar, kind of a play on words, that Shaddai is also very closely related to the one who caused the pain. Uh, that's a long way of basically saying that Naomi would look at God and say, God is the one who's responsible for all of my pain. All of my suffering. Again, which is telling to me that she's not dismissing God. She's not saying God doesn't exist. She's actually acknowledging the fact that God does exist, but that the existence of this God has actually brought about this pain in her, life's, in her life, and it's, it's inexplicable. She doesn't understand it, but she attributes it to him. The, the third thing that I would point out that I think is also telling with regard to her theological beliefs and understanding is that she actually believes that God's hand is actually turned against her. So it's one thing to look at God and say, I think God is the one that actually brought pain into my life. And to be able to look at, there's different types of pain. And we said this a couple weeks ago. There's the pain of sabotage, all right? I mean, there's just like, I've been watching a lot, and I really like it, bully beatdown. And there's like pain that's given to a bully that deserves pain, all right? All right, is that okay? Bully beat down? Right, Somebody like, really? You watch that? Yeah, I, I love it actually. And I watch it with my daughters and we, we like it and we learn like godly lessons about the ultimate bully. Anyways, the point of the matter is that, that there's, there's pain that's just like sabotage. Somebody sabotaging somebody else or just inflicting pain arbitrarily on somebody else with, with no other intention in mind other than to just sabotage somebody. That's pain. It's arbitrary pain. But do you know that God's pain is never arbitrary? Ever. It's always by design. And so there's a pain that you can look at in God's, from God's hand that is by design. It's like the pain of a doctor taking a scalpel and bringing about an incision in a skin of a human being in order to remove a tumor that is actually destructive to life. So there's that type of pain, but that pain is by design as opposed to pain that is just arbitrary and has no purpose or no intention of ever doing anything except sabotage. But the pain that Naomi identifies in her life, yes, it's from God, but this is the third way in which she views the pain, that the pain from God is actually because somehow the Almighty has become her enemy. She's not convinced that God loves her. And this is where the story of Naomi hits us home. Because all of us, we can say we've been in places like this in our life. All of us, at some point, we've suffered. We've gone through something. We've gone through something that's inexplicable. We don't know why it's happening. We can't figure out why it happened to us. I mean, we can understand why it may have happened to somebody else. Because after all, they made a series of bad decisions, and I can just totally understand why that happened to them. They deserve that. But usually whenever something like this happens to us, we always look at our circumstances, our situations. We let's say, this is not right. Maybe this is not the right person. Wrong package was delivered to the wrong house. This doesn't belong to me. And if it is from God, then maybe it's because somehow I've, I've, God has become my enemy. He doesn't love me. I think Naomi would theologically agree and affirm that God is love and he does loving things. In the beginning of the chapter, she points out 
of chapter uh, one, she says this. Then she arose and she said to her daughters-in-law to return to the, from the country of Moab. She said and she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she recognizes that, hey, God came and God visited his people and he gave them food. How does a God come and visit his people by giving them food apart from the fact that he's a good God? So she recognizes, yes, God is good. But he's not good to me. And pain has the tendency to turn our focus inward and to cause us to question and cause us to redefine our theological understanding of who God is and why certain things happen to us and why calamity befalls us and why with such intensity and why with such longevity, why? It must be that if God does exist and if God is all-powerful and if he is all-loving, He's just not loving to me. And that's where Naomi was. And one of the beautiful things that we learned from the story is that that's really not true at all, that God had another purpose. I think oftentimes a clue that we can look for as to why we have these false conclusions and why we oftentimes find an incompatibility between what we would identify as a God of love and our suffering. So in other words, if you're suffering, you're going through a hard time right now, and somehow someone was to sit down with you and say, okay, draw a line, draw a direct line from your suffering here with your feet planted in the midst of pain. Draw a line, straight line to a loving God. Most of us couldn't do it. Most of us couldn't do it. Most of us would just be like, I don't, I don't know how it gets there. There's no congruency. There's no connection between my suffering and a loving God. And I think oftentimes a clue that we can look for, one of the reasons why we find any congruity between the two, is oftentimes found in the trivializing of our understanding of love and the trivializing of our understanding of God. Um, Listen to how C.S. Lewis would put this. What, we would really, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said, of anything that we, we happen to like, what does it matter so long as they're contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. We want a senile benevolence who is, who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves, quote-unquote, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. So I love this. C.S. Lewis has a way of putting words together. He's just like, look, the reality is for most of us, we'll start with God. We have a misunderstanding. We trivialize our understanding of God. Most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we want a God that's not a father in heaven. We want a God who's a grandfather in heaven. And sort of a half insane grandpa who most of the time doesn't really know what's going on, and any time we ask him something, he's just like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I was going to give that to you. Yeah, that's right. You were going to give that to me, all right? And that's what we want. We want a grandpa in heaven who just gives us anything we want, whenever we want, however we want, and at the length and duration of which we want it. It's a false view of God. We don't want a father in heaven. We want a grandpa in heaven. But oftentimes we fail because we have a false view of love. And I think, to be quite honest with you, if we look at the way that we oftentimes view love is the way that we would identify our understanding of love is not so much love after all as much as it is 
sort of a preference of ourselves above, above and beyond everyone else. In other words, what we really want when we define love is we think of love as people making much of number one. And that's me. Like, as long as you give gifts to me, as long as you affirm me, as long as you acknowledge me, as long as you identify my good talents and my abilities, I feel really loved. I feel really cared for because I'm being made much of. You know what happens? We think God should treat us the same way. But you know what the funny thing is? Is we know how morally wrong that is. In fact, if you're a good parent, good mom or dad, you love your kids, you know how lethal this type of idea is in your kids. If you don't do anything to somehow steer or curb that away from your kids, what you end up having is a kid that is spoiled. Kid grows up and thinks that the world revolves around them. And God loves us enough to say, the world doesn't revolve around you. True love is not you being made much of. True love is me being made much of. True love is found in me. I'm the father of life, father of love. I give love. I am love. But oftentimes we think love has to do with us being made much of and God giving us everything that we want. So really at the end of the day, what we want is we want God to be kind of like a host of the party, walking around with a tray of hors d'oeuvres, giving us everything we want to our heart's desire. We want God to be like this concierge who's always just giving us what we want, giving us the direction we want. We want God to be like this warm-hearted philanthropist who's always just, you know, kindly, generously bestowing blessing and gift and abundance upon us constantly over and over and over again. And the moment that doesn't happen, we get frustrated. When in reality, God is not a warm-hearted philanthropist at the end of the day. God is not a concierge who's always giving us what we want. God is not the host of a party. God is not the grandpa in heaven. God is a consuming fire. And we oftentimes are just unsettled with that reality. And at the end of the day, when we don't get what we expect should be coming to us, we shake our fists at God. We say the Almighty is against us and the Almighty hates us. That's where we're all at. I mean, let's be honest. We do the same thing with relationships, don't we? If you're married and you don't always get everything that you want, you oftentimes can play these little manipulative games. You don't love me. I know, because I do it really well. All right, I can identify it. You can ask my wife. I got 20 years practice. I'm really good at this. Most often, it's something I spend more time repenting over because it's not a good quality. It's a selfish ungodly quality that looks nothing like the self-sacrificing of Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's lethal in relationships. And it's one of the contributors, one of the major contributors to our ongoing helplessness, hopelessness, and joylessness. And I'm not even sure if joylessness is a word. But it's part and parcel of the whole. And what Naomi teaches us is that she has this view of God that is actually formed in the crucible, under fire, through the suffering. And at the end of the day, we see a woman who's very bitter. She's turned in on herself. In fact, she's standing in front of her friends, and they're like, Naomi, it's great to see you. She's like, don't call me Naomi. I went out 
fool. I was in the Hummer. I came back on the Greyhound bus, and I had nothing. <laughs> and right behind her is, is like Ruth. She's like, uh, I, I'm with you, you know? It's just like, what, what am I? You know, I, like, I gave up everything, even my gods to follow you, you know? It's just like, and you have nothing? I mean, that's not very nice, you know? But the reality is, that's what oftentimes a self-centered type of a viewpoint can bring us to, is that we, we are in the midst of suffering, we have a view of God that's not consistent with Scripture, and with who He is, with His nature, and we become very self-focused, and hopeless. And that was where Naomi was at. The flip side of all this is that we get this amazing advantage point that the characters in the story just never had. Because we have access to the narrator. And, you know, Naomi didn't. Naomi is living this. So Naomi's in the middle of a trek back to Bethlehem. She's in the middle of, you know, this dialogue amongst all these women who are like, she's back, you know, and she's just trying to live in the middle of this and process all this stuff. But we have the narrator who's actually giving us an overview of everything. This is one of the beautiful things about the actual book of Ruth is that we can stand back and realize that God's actually in the midst moving and working through the whole scenario, the whole scene, all four chapters, that God really has not forsaken Naomi, that God really has not stopped loving Naomi. In fact, the exact opposite is true. That even though God has brought maybe wounds and calamity and hurt into Naomi's life, it was all God's means by which to posture her for even greater blessings and to bless her way beyond what she could ever even imagine. And so with that being said, we have this opportunity to look at the evidences of God's grace in our life. And one of the things that you know, we do oftentimes in our ministry amongst our leaders and our staff, we will always sit down and we do this thing. We get ourselves in this habit where we just say, let's talk about evidences of God's grace. Because at the end of the day, I mean, we can sit around and talk about all the things that are going bad. There's a lot of things that we can talk about. You know, Sermons are way too long. Lights are too dim. Uh, child's ministry, we don't have enough rooms and you know, the services go way too... We can talk about all sorts of things that are just wrong with everything in this church and people's lives and so on and so forth. Or we can actually train our minds to look at evidences of what God is doing. We just call it evidences of God's grace. I want to look at at least two evidences of God's grace in the midst of Naomi's life that were already happening in the midst of this great tragedy. The first of which is that God's blessings were about to find Naomi even though she wasn't looking for them. This is amazing because here's Naomi literally in the midst of the throes of self-centeredness, in the midst of depression, in the midst of helplessness. And, and all of a sudden, um, right around the corner, even though Naomi doesn't even know it, God is actually positioning the stage, setting everything up so that he's going to pour out great blessing. Take a look at the very last verse of chapter 1 because the narrator wants us to get this. All right, This is what's beautiful about the story. Is the narrator uh, very carefully and according to just amazing design it like deposits these little phrases and statements in there to say no no the story's not over everything's not hopeless everything's not lost in fact quite the opposite God is at work God has not stopped loving Naomi in fact God has continued to love Naomi here's evidence of that the last verse says this and they came to Bethlehem when at the time of the beginning of the barley harvest so Naomi's coming back thinking, I'm a woman, I'm a widowed woman, I'm hanging out with the non-Jewish Moabite woman 
who is not only widowed, but also has no children, and also carries with her a reputation, the baggage of this reputation of infertile. Like, nobody will ever want Ruth, right? In a male-dominated culture, a woman that's infertile, who's already given 10 years shot trying to have a baby, who's not had a baby, she's damaged goods. Nobody wants her. And here's Ruth and Naomi coming back into this male-dominated culture with, with no men, under which they can find refuge, no means, no ability to, to, to get food or to somehow find some sort of sustainable living, and they come back, and God literally plants them and says, they came back right at the beginning stages of the barley harvest. It's setting the stage for the next chapter to just simply say, no, 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 God truly loves Naomi, and he's not forgotten her. How many times... Do we question God's motives, God's purposes in our lives? And yet, in reality, right around the corner, everything that God was doing in our life was actually being worked for his, his ultimate purposes and glories in our lives. I got two daughters. And I can tell you story after story after story as a dad raising my daughters in moments and times where I'm like asking my kids, I want you to go do this. And take out the trash, and they're like, oh, are you kidding me? I hate the trash, you know, and in reality, my mind, I'm like, if they do this, and after they do this, I'm going to take them to go get ice cream, man, and we're going to go do something fun, and they don't know that, though, but in their mind, there's, I hate this, it stinks, and why me, you know, it's like, the trash, why can't you find somebody else, and, and I'm just like, gosh, it's crazy, I'll, I just, I'm, I'm just, i got to take out the trash before I go take them to yogurt, they don't get it. I mean, I can sit here and explain the whole thing to them, but it's just like, I'd, I'd rather just see them trust me. And I wonder how many times our, our, our Heavenly Father is like that. He's just like, man, I've got their whole life in my hand, and everything I ask them to go through and that they are going through, that I've designed for them to walk through and pass through, and every passageway and every circumstance and every street that's got broken pavement, everything that they've gone through in their life, I intend for their good. Not their destruction. They're good. That's what God was doing in Naomi's life. At the end of the story, we're actually told that God had done all of this to bring about the lineage of the great King David, which, what an amazing honor and a privilege to be able to be in the lineage of David. We know from New Testament stories, which hadn't been written yet then, but now we can look back and realize that God even had bigger intentions, that Naomi and Ruth would have never been able to even dream how big it was, that God had actually not only intention to bring about the greatest of all kings, but even the greatest of all king of kings through David's lineage, the Messiah himself. She just, they didn't see it because they were stuck in the middle of it. So my point is this, is perhaps in the midst of suffering that you find yourself right now, you've got blind spots all over the place. You just don't see what's going on. Be careful with your tongue. Be careful with the things that you say, the way in which you are just quick to accuse God or misjudge God based upon very, very limited resources and knowledge and wisdom. I said this a couple weeks ago. We assume to know what the rest of the book is, even though we're on chapter 3, and it's a 30-chapter book. 
that we can look at our lives and we're like, how dare you do this to me, God? And we're like, God's like, look, what chapter are you in again? Chapter three. God's like, there's 30 chapters. You have no way of knowing what the end of the book is all about. You just don't know. And yet we judge. And God is actually positioning Naomi to receive great blessing. Uh, the second thing that we see is that God's blessing also came in the form of a person. Like I said, when Naomi comes back, she's like, I went away full, came back totally empty. I have nothing. And again, depression, suffering, these types of things have an inward focus that oftentimes come upon us that Naomi didn't even see that right next to her in the form of a Moabite, infertile widow herself was actually the seed of all of her blessings in her life. That it was through Ruth that she was going to get grain the following day. It was through Ruth that she was going to eventually be brought back into the family of Elimelech. It was through Ruth that she was one day going to be given a child. It was through Ruth that one day that child would have other children that would lead to David. It was through Ruth that through the lineage of David, all the way through to the lineage of Jesus, a Messiah would come. She had no way of knowing that, but God actually used a person to do that. And I say this because so oftentimes we look at people in our lives most of the time as just nuisances. Right? We look at people in our lives oftentimes that cause problems and hardship and difficulty for us, and we're like, them? Are you kidding me? There's no way they're going to have anything of any value to help me at all. They're worthless. They have nothing. There's no standing whatsoever they have in the society, in the culture. They have no ability to be a means by which to bring blessing into my life. Because look at them. But do you know that's exactly the mistake that the scribes and Pharisees made when they looked at Jesus? They said, he's a suffering street preacher. And he claims to be the Messiah. And he dies. Do you know that even the disciples got caught up in this lie, this false concept? Because in their mind, that if Jesus is the Messiah, they saw a complete incongruity between Messiah and dying. That a dead Messiah equals a bad Messiah or a failed Messiah. That how can a Messiah actually die? That's impossible. Yet three days later, Jesus was risen from the dead. And God said, through this cornerstone that was rejected, all blessings flow. Through his suffering, his pain, God says, I have leveraged through his life the blessing for the whole world. Jesus literally came through the lineage of Ruth in this intense suffering of Naomi. Did God love Naomi? More than you can even imagine. Did Naomi have an understanding of how deep the love of God was? Not a clue. But see, we have a better advantage point because Naomi could not look forward, but we have this incredible opportunity where we can look back. And we question, because we do it all the time. We question. Based upon the crucible of suffering, we find ourselves in the questions that oftentimes arise is why God? Where are you, God? Are you good, God? And ultimately, do you even love me? And God says, you could know my love by looking to the cross. Jesus would put it this way, greater love has no man than this 
than a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus would also say, for God so loved the world and that he gave his son, that God's love is always spoken in direct relationship to the sacrifice of his only begotten son. Do you know the first time the word love ever appears in the entire Bible? It's fascinating. Genesis 22. It's when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. From the Old Testament, God says, I want to put a shadow of the way I want you to think. You need to train your mind to think. When you think about love, don't think of your self-centered kingdom and all the accolades and praise and affirmation and worship that gets showered upon you. God says, that's not love. That will lead you to destruction. It will turn you into a beast because you cannot handle that type of praise. God says, when you think of love, I want you to think of the cross. And that's God's way of saying it's the cross that demonstrates the depth and the width and the breadth and the length of the love of God that he has for you. Because it was through the cross that God created the way that in our suffering, that is so oftentimes attributed to and connected to our sin. So oftentimes connected to our sin. Jesus' suffering was connected to sin. So oftentimes our suffering is either connected to sins that we've committed or sins that have been uh, committed against us. And so God says, sin destroys. Sin leads to slavery. And God wanted to create a way whereby he can free us from sin. To destroy sin among us without destroying us with the sin. And that's the love of God revealed through Jesus on the cross. So all of us suffer. We're all in the same boat. None of us are unique. None of us can look at our lives and be like, you know, but you don't know my suffering's worse. You know what? You might find that you suffer worse than anybody else in this room, but the reality is this is just one small church amongst thousands, perhaps even millions that meet all throughout the world. And I guarantee you, there's other people that have suffered even worse fates than any of us can ever even imagine. But even greater than that, rather than comparing our suffering on a horizontal level with each other, compare our suffering to the suffering which God himself subjected his son to. And for him to, for us to see what Jesus did for us on our behalf and realize that God actually used Jesus as a means to leverage our blessing. It was his suffering. He suffered for us so that my suffering, my bitterness, my pain can have purpose. This is how George MacDonald put this, and I want to finish with this. He said this, The Son of God suffered unto death, not that men might suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his I think what he means by that is that so that our suffering won't just simply be wasted, but that our suffering would be like Jesus' suffering, meaning that it was victorious. It was a suffering unto death, but after death unto life. That our suffering would actually birth greater passion, deeper roots, greater theological conviction of the greatness and the love of God. For us. That's why Paul would say it this way. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor any other thing, suffering, angels, 
demons. You can stack it up no matter what it is. Anything you can imagine on this planet that we struggle with, that we suffer with, that we deal with. Paul says, nothing can separate me from the love of God that's been revealed through Jesus on the cross. That's how much God loves us. The love of God has been revealed through Jesus. We're going to respond because at the end of the day, what this is about is us taking our false theological concepts to God. And for some of us, it's a matter of confessing them to God and saying, God, I've had false ideas about you. I've misjudged you. You know why false concepts about God are so bad? Because false concepts about God actually lead you to live bad lives, meaning lives of death, rather than lives of fullness and joy, rather than lives of forgiveness and love. When we have a view of God where he's harsh and critical and judgmental and angry, you know what type of people we become? Just like that. We become fearful rather than full of joy and confidence. We become people that are always concerned about our position, even with other people. We're, like, we're never confident. We're never really confident. Do people like me? Do they like me? Do they love me? Oftentimes that can be traced back to a, does God even like me? Does God even love me? I know he can love other people. It seems like he loves other people. But I don't know if he loves me. That's where all of us have something of which to confess and to look at before God and bring it back to God and say, God, wash me, cleanse me. Take those theological convictions back to God and ask God to correct them for you. That's what our suffering should do. That's what our bitterness should lead us to, is to get us a bigger picture of how big our God is and how deep Father's love is for us. What I want to do right now is um, I just I want to ask if there's any here right now. We'll turn off the lights right now. I just this is I don't even want you guys looking at each other or thinking about each other. I want you guys just to be thinking about what God is maybe wanting to speak to you about in your heart right now. But for some of you that might be going through some heavy circumstances in your life, whatever it might be, but there might be areas of suffering that you've gone through and you don't understand why they're there, you don't understand what they're about, and you really question, you really struggle with, really wonder whether or not God really loves you. Um, and that's what's created this bitterness in your soul want to confess that before God or you want to have other people pray for you before God um, if that's you if there's any type of bitterness in your soul or difficulty in your soul or wrestlings inside your soul or you're just your theological convictions about God are, are actually not consistent with what I described today from the Bible it's actually led you to become very fearful of other people fearful of relationships you're, you're not able to be loving in fact quite the opposite you're very critical judgmental of a lot of people it's caused you to become very cynical of of just people in general I I think God wants to heal you and cleanse you and wash you and and, and if if that's you here today the crucible of suffering has led you to anything like that and you just want to be prayed for um, why don't you stand up right where you're at and and I I want to have some people around you pray for you this is church you know this is what's beautiful about church is we're the family of God yeah we're dysfunctional we got a lot of issues. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with questions about God. But for us to be able to be like Naomi and just say, yeah, that's me. I'm bitter. 
I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know why God's done this to me. But man, just Naomi's honesty was amazing. Anybody? Anybody else to stand up right where you're at? It's tough sometimes to stand, I know. But honestly, it's, it's, it's kind of the beginning path of just acknowledging. All you're really doing is just saying, it's me. I need someone to pray for me. That's all you're doing. Anybody else? It's cool. We love you. Thanks for standing. Good job. Anybody else? Just stand right where you're at. Just going to pray for you. The people that are standing right now, if, uh, those of you that are sitting around them, you guys wouldn't mind just standing up, maybe laying hands on them, praying for them. Anybody else? Just stand up right where you're at. If you're standing, uh, maybe raise your hand and have some people come pray for you. Just raise your hand if you want someone to pray for you. Okay, I want you guys that are uh, praying for them, just start praying for them right now. Just pray loud enough so that they can hear you. We'll just take a minute, pray, and then I'll, I'll close it up in prayer, and then we'll just worship. Partake of communion. Communion reminds us that... Uh, that we're not alone in our suffering. Communion actually reminds us that Jesus suffered with us. We eat the bread, we drink the cup, we remember that, that he suffered not only with us, but also for us, bearing our sin. That's why we love Jesus. So we know we have a safe God that we can go to. He might be big, he might be powerful, beyond our comprehension, but he's a safe God that we can run to. He loves us, he's like a father. So go ahead and pray. I'll pray for you in a second. rest of you guys, you can just maybe bow your heads and just begin to think about God's love for you. We'll worship. We'll pray. Ask God to reveal His grace and His favor and His love to you. To see the cross, that you'd see your sin there, that you'd see how great God's love is for you. That's what I pray you see. To know that today, this morning, we're here. We have a God that's very near. He's not distant. He's not far. He's here. He loves us. God, we thank you that we can trust you. We look to you. We thank you for all these people that have stood, that no matter what types of circumstances they've gone through, no matter what types of bitter seasons they found themselves in, God, that they can look to you and see how you desire to use their suffering as a means to bring about greater glory to your name, but also as a means to bring about greater joy in their lives in an ultimate way. Even while suffering in this world, we can still look to you and find joy in the midst of intense suffering. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that are standing, that are just asking for a touch from you. God, I ask that you would meet them right where they're at. We worship you now. We respond to you now. We partake of communion by way of confession of sin, by way of recognizing and repenting from things that we have brought to this table, that brought to this room today that are false concepts about who you are we confess those things to you and we ask you God that you would wash us and cleanse us and renew us renew a right spirit in us and help us to sing joyfully to you even in the midst of perhaps pain amen it's worked out